Blog Talk Radio. Hey, this is Zach Efron, and you're listening to The Stupid Cancer Show. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> Somebody's got a case of the Mondays. Because he has a lot of chutzpah. <laughs> Hello there, children. Hey, hey, kids. <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. And now, the hosts of the Stupid Cancer Show, Lisa Bernhard and Matthew Zachary. <laughs> Monday, April 16th, 2012, and welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. I'm Matthew Zachary, a 16-year young adult survivor of pediatric brain cancer. And I'm Lisa Bernhardt, 16-year young adult breast cancer survivor, and we're your hosts for the Stupid Cancer Show. It is not okay. It's not okay. It's not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year, so got cancer? Under 40? Suck, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. All right, everybody, tonight's show is all about young adult standards of care. Joining us tonight is Rebecca Johnson, MD, Medical Director, Adolescent and Young Adult Program at the Seattle Children's Hospital, and Dr. Peter Kocha. He's the Section Chief at the Division of Hematology, Oncology, University of Nebraska Medical Center. Kicking it off in the spotlight, Michelle Goodwin, two-time young adult non-Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor. She's an art director and photographer and creator of something called Malignant Humor. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, also known as the I'm Too Young for this Cancer Foundation online. 24-7 at stupidcancer.org. We are not your father's cancer society, but we are bringing the cause of cancer under 40 to the national spotlight where it belongs. So... Welcome aboard another fun and exciting round through the hay on tonight's Stupid Cancer Show, where remission is not a cure and survivorship is all that matters. Oh, exhausting, isn't it? Yep. Come on, here so we go. So boring and tired. <laughs> oh, yeah. No. No. But I'm we really happy to be here. He is. Full of life and energy. And <laughs> we want to extend a very warm Stupid Cancer welcome to any and all of our first-time listeners here on the Blog Talk Radio Network and on iTunes as we broadcast live from the chemo deck our fabulous Lovely, adorable, quaint, and a little bit toasty studio tonight. A little tonight, toasty, toasty. Down in a 90-degree day in Manhattan in downtown Tribeca. As a reminder, the Stupid Cancer Show is a live interactive chat room during each and every broadcast. We invite you to join in the fun and connect with our friends and ask questions of our guests. And now our self-ingratiating applause. Woo! Or, yes, we. It's warm in here. Who is that saying we? Wee! 
I don't know. Let's, let's try it again. I like that. It sounds like Kenny. It's the ghost of Ginger past. Yeah, he's we not are, with us. We are gingerless. Kenny is on vacation. How dare the, what he? What was I thinking? Allowing I know. him to go on vacation. Place is falling apart. He is in, uh, where is he? Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, with his uh, mom and sister. They're having a good time, and we wish him well. He will not be calling in because he's on vacation. That's right. Anyway, subbing in for him, but not subbing in for the show, Reverend Dr. James Manning. Hello, Matt. You are our resident ginger for tonight. I'll try my best. Okay. He's blonde. He's not really ginger. No, you you are the anti-ginger. I guess, yeah. In fact, if you could be really, really pasty white and not a ginger, it's me and you. (laughs) Well. Sure, whatever. (laughs) You too, yes. That's pretty accurate, But you got the Nashville twang going on for you there. That's definitely a step up. For now. For now. For now? Are you going through a, like, accent reduction? No, his his Nashville twang really likes so much so that uh, last week's guest, the actress Laura Linney, uh, picked up on it. And she was was quite uh, admiring of your Nashville accent. I thought. Thank you, Laura. Good plug for last week's show, by the way. Thank you. If you did miss our show last week with the uh, lovely and talented Oscar-winning Laura Linney, you can go she's to She's been Oscar-nominated. Oscar-nominated. She hasn't won yet, oh, but I think she's been nominated three times. I just gave her a boost. Give her a goddamn Oscar <laughs> already. Go to uh, iTunes.DoBitCancer.com. And Darlene Hunt, the Darlene creator Hunt, yes. of The Big C, with uh, us last week. And, it'll uh, take you right to the feed in iTunes. Click subscribe. They'll download it all for free. You can listen to them whenever you want. That was a lovely show, though. It was a phenomenal I mean, show. I, I mean, outside, really? of, outside of the fact that she's an actor, they do a big show, they do a great show, it was just tremendously fun. They were great. I thought they were very forthcoming and warm and open. and So nice. And like non- I love that we, you know, to get personal about their families, Laura's family. Her dad. Her, her, and her dad, yeah. her dad having passed away last year from cancer, and her mom having been a nurse at Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Kooky. Yeah. In the 60s. And giving, yes, and giving her mom a big cheer and a shout-out. Yeah. I thought that was really lovely. Great. Good, good people. Yep, good fun. And I finally did watch the show. <laughs> good say, good I, for you to admit that now. Uh, that yeah. I, <laughs> anyway. It's a very good show. Yeah, it was a great show. Yeah. Um, so what are we talking about? So let's talk. Well, you had a, an interesting uh, I had a date. visit. I had a date at Sloan you had, Kettering. You had a date, speaking of Sloan Kettering, on Friday. That is correct. I'm going to mispronounce her name. I know how to pronounce the first name, um, but her name is uh, Suleika, S-U-L-E. It's Suleika... Here, the pronunciation, actually, the New York Times has the correct pronunciation. What is it? Suleika Jawad. Jawad. Mm-hmm. J-A-O-U-A-D. Right. Suleika Jawad. She, she, she was wonderful. I was uh, put in touch with her through one of our, I don't know, friends in a comedy or whatever, and uh, I got a chance to go up to Sloan, which I hate going to Sloan because it just reminds me of getting treated. Getting cancer. Sloan. Yes, <laughs> all that cancer stuff going on yeah. up there. But I got a chance to spend about 45 minutes an hour with her. She's in um, isolation. So, so I she's, a, well, we should explain who she is. She's blogging for the New York Times. I said, that would help. <laughs> Stop being helpful. She's, <laughs> let's tell the people who she is. She's blogging, currently blogging for the New York Times about what it's like to be a young adult going through cancer treatments. And her column is called Life Interrupted, Facing Cancer in Your 20s. And she did a post uh, March 29th. And I'm not sure if she's had a, if she's had a second post up, but you can follow her on Twitter. Um, difficult to spend. How about James? Why don't you put that in the chat room? Sure. Go we'll get her Twitter feed, and you can follow her. And she's written a terrific column that touches on several columns by now. Several columns, yes. And 
um, trying to pull up the other columns, but I just want to read from this one that she posted on March 29th because so much of what she writes about speaks to exactly what we talk about. Every day. Every single day. She says, cancer magnifies the in-betweenness of young adulthood. You're not a child anymore, yet you're not fully ready to live in the adult world either. After my diagnosis, and by the way, she has leukemia. After my diagnosis, I move back into my childhood bedroom. As I get sicker, I increasingly rely on my parents to take care of me, but at the same time, I've had no choice but to grow up fast. Daunting questions that most of my peers won't have to consider for many more years have become my urgent, everyday concerns. How will I hold on to health insurance if I'm unable to work? Will I be able to have children? How long will I live? Of course, everybody's question. But she she really addresses these uh, issues of, you know, even inside the oncology ward, she says being a young adult with cancer can make a person feel like a misfit. I'm the youngest patient on the floor. I'm the youngest patient my doctor's ever treated with leukemia. Um, a vast number of patients with her form of leukemia are over 60. Yep. Um, and so she, it's it's exactly the issues that we address day in and day out in this organization, every Monday night on the show. Uh, so it's she's got a great attitude, though. She I mean, did. She's in isolation, so you, you have to don the whole Dustin Hoffman outbreak movie. You had a mask when you went to see her. And mask, you, yeah. gown, gloves, cap, everything. Um, so she's really in the throes of treatment right now. Well, they're depleting her immune system to get her ready for a stem cell transplant or, wow. or a bone marrow transplant. She had stem cells recently, and they're giving her BMT in uh, 40 days. So she's basically on chemo to kill her immune system so they can do the procedure. Right. So her boyfriend was there, an amazing guy. Uh, really, he actually works for the Huffington Post, her oh. boyfriend. Oh, yeah. Um, so uh, I met a bunch of nurses who were there. They came in. She seems in great spirits. She has her laptop. Um, she's managed to decorate her room very personally, very appropriately, very cool. They let her do that. But at the same time, you know, she's like, you know, she's heard from uh, Livestrong. She's heard from us. She's heard from a couple of other small organizations. But she really hasn't met any other young adults at Sloan Kettering. And right. this is not really a shot at Sloan Kettering, but I know they have a young adult program there. And I mentioned are the names of the people I know who work the young adult program there, and I really do hope she gets a chance to have some young adult visitors who are also inpatients going through this. Um, but at the end of the day, she's uh, she she redefines the word overachiever. Yeah. Because I went in to see her and I asked her how she's doing, and I said, well, uh, what have you been writing? I said, well, I have these nine posts. Wait, 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 nine? <laughs> nine posts? She's nine posts ahead of herself. <laughs> That's, yeah. Yeah, for the New York Times. Yes, for the New York Times. Yeah. So very prolific. She loves to write. It's all she loves to do in her in life. She's really glad that she's still able to write, and um, just she she is the embodiment of like I said, why we exist. We're here to give voice to the voiceless, and she's she she is in rooms with eighty year old people. And yeah. not that there's anything wrong with eighty year old people, but it would be nice if she were treated age appropriately. And again, she talks about being misdiagnosed. I mean, she was getting on with her life at what twenty two when she was diagnosed. She was ready to go to Paris. Um, she was, you know, her doctors originally said that she just had burnout syndrome. She was working too hard, ordered her to rest. And she started Googling her own symptoms, as a lot of people do. And uh, unfortunately, you know, she says that a week later, my worst fears were confirmed. Yep. And she found out she had leukemia. So anyway, it was great that you got a chance to meet her in person. Oh, she really, really charming, uh, very hope-filled, very, very intelligent. Like you knew right away. That, yeah. like, there's just a good soul in there. Her brain is working full-time. 
Terrific. Did we post her? I'm going to go in the chat room here. And I think Matt got it. You got her blog up there? I posted a, the photo that I took of her uh, with me at Sloan Kettering, so you can all uh, see who she, what she looks like. And, okay, I and, just posted I just posted okay. her blog, so folks yeah. can go to the New York Times and check out her blog. Definitely take, out, take a look at the blog. Yeah. Follow her. She's on Facebook, um, and uh, she, she likes the support she's getting. She was really interested in speaking with me about, you know, Tell me more about Down the Rabbit Hole. What is the Young Adult Cancer Movement? What are the organizations out there? Who can I talk to about? Because she's, she's a journalist. She writes. She wants to know. And I hope that I can be of any resource to her and the other organizations can serve. Uh, she knew about the summit. She was sorry she couldn't go, but she's seeing all the pictures on my wall, and she's really, really happy that it exists. She would love to come next year. And, uh, again, I'm really humbling. I don't get to do this very often, to visit patients in hospitals and just reminds me of what I wish I, I had. What I wish it would have been nice if someone came to visit me sure. in the cancer center at Sloan, um, who was another young adult cancer patient. Right. So really remarkable, humbling, and touching experience. Great. Well, hopefully we'll have more contact with her. And yes, uh, we certainly will. Wonderful. All right. Well, let's get to our uh, our first guest then. All right. In our Survivor Spotlight is Michelle Goodwin. She's art director, photographer, snark-filled advocate of the underdog, two-time survivor of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. She uses her blatant brand of sarcasm to cope, educate, and help others deal with the mentally overwhelming task of living every day with a cancer diagnosis. And she created something called Malignant Humor. She's going to tell us all about that. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Michelle Goodwin. Michelle. I don't want to be on after you just talked about that really, really lovely, lovely person. Well, that's what we do. Oh, we, you are we, anyway. We, we set the bar really high so yeah. everyone else feels terrible. So let's flip the script completely and go to people who are jerks that have cancer. <laughs> i got to tell you, when, I, when you first reach out, malignant humor, you know, it, it's obviously a play on words, and, and we're used to playing on words, but no one's ever put those two words together in my mind before. You just think that that would have naturally come in the general course of, of events in the last 10 years. But um, I don't know if it is entirely original. Maybe someone invented it 300 years ago. But I was really impressed that you know people make words up and this made sense. So uh, so let's get started from the scratch go. Um, who are you? <laughs> who am I? I don't know. We're trying to. <laughs> we're all trying to figure that out, I guess. Um Yes, in the existential I, sense. Yes. I was I was about to go find who I was about six years ago, and I left my hometown after doing uh, photography and fine art in college at a really good school, and then. Um, and where was that? I'm sorry, to VCU, uh, Virginia Commonwealth University, is a photography program, and I've been doing it since I was eight years old. Messing with chemicals might have given me cancer. Who knows? So, um, but I think life will give you cancer. Yeah. Uh, so I went out to San Francisco um, to go to a graduate program, portfolio program for creative advertising, and uh, I moved to Portland, Oregon, and I was there with my boyfriend at the time, um, and I'm noticing this, you know, protrusion coming from my, you know, it was my spleen was pushing out, but I had no idea what it was, and I said, what, who gets a gut right here? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm 27, I'm like, why would I ever get a gut right here? But I kind of just assumed that's what it was, or an ulcer. And kind of pushing my, out of the side of your abdomen, you mean? Yeah, in the front. Like the, I was losing a little bit of weight, but I'd always been thin. Um, 
So it, it, my spleen was, my lymph nodes were pushing out. There was a, you know, a, an abscess, like it's growing out of between my rib cage. And so I, there's a swollen, you know, a painless swelling. And it had been happening for a little while. And I noticed it in pictures and stuff. And I was like, I don't know what that is, whatever. Um, and my boyfriend said, well, when I was about 28, my stuff started falling apart. So maybe that's what it is. <laughs> and I was like, yep, that must be what it is. So um, I'm in ad school, and everything's great, and I have a great set of friends, and we all drink entirely too much, and we all stay up all night doing projects, and so everybody feels like crap. So I had no idea that, you know, it was anything. So I get home, I can't wear T-shirts that are very tight anymore, and that was kind of my thing. And I was like, well, let's just go see what this problem is, because I have to wear tight T-shirts. I just have to. So I get home. (laughs) What's that? The necessity. Yeah, exactly. So that's really the only thing that made me go to the doctor was like, I can't wear tight T-shirts anymore. We've got to figure this out. Not that's I feel the like new crap. prevention standards that we have to implement. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I get back to, um, for a Christmas break, back to Virginia, and my mother looks at me and goes, this is not good. I don't know what's going on with you, but I see the swelling. You look terrible. We go to the doctor, and my doctor sounds very much like, uh, okay, that guy from South Park. Oh, yeah, Mr. Mackey. <laughs> yeah, he's like, mm, okay, I think this is, um, whatever this is, it isn't good, okay? So we go to the hospital that night. I spend, like, my birthday and Christmas in the hospital, and they're like, it's cancer. <laughs> and my parents are sitting there, like, I'm just staring at the wall, and my parents are sitting there, and they start crying, and all I can think to myself is, I really thought I was just lactose intolerant. Are you Sure. Because I haven't been able to eat cheese for, like, five years, so I just figured, you know, it's lactose intolerant. It's like, you should check again. But it wasn't, and, you know, as soon as I got on chemo, I could start eating cheese again, and I was really stoked about that because I don't think anyone should have to live without cheese. It's Absolutely really no, not. It's no life at all. Without That's right. So, so from the day you first got your protruding lump to the day you were diagnosed, which sounds like it happened the day you got to the hospital. Pretty much. How, how much time was that in between? Oh, the lump. I don't know. They they think it's been there for years, and what, and they were like, okay, it's 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 probably leukemia. So we thought, well, stage four or whatever this is in leukemia ain't good, but it turned out it was non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So it's like something that, you know, 60-, 70-year-old men typically get. A lot of people say to me, oh, yeah, my dad had that. Oh, yeah, my grandfather had that. But the good news is, is that they were all fine, yeah. you know, and so – I was a 27-year-old woman with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And, um, you know, probably due to, you know, environmental, immune, di- who, know- who knows what. Um, Too nothing- much carpet fresh. What's that? Too much carpet fresh. Well, she had all those chemicals. I think so. Yeah. She's chalking it up to photography. I don't know. I mean, there's yeah. there's many things you can blame. Who knows? And I go, well, <laughs> you know, if half of us get it, that's just kind of when I had to, when I happened to get it, I got really, really, really lucky, and I'm very, you know, before you guys, like right around the time I was diagnosed, you guys had come out, and, you know, there was nothing before you guys, so it was pretty amazing. I didn't have anybody to talk to, um, you know, and there, and there was a whole network of people. And I What just, hospital was this? And uh, which one? Where I was diagnosed? Yeah. Uh, my doctor's name was Dr. John Mueller, and he was amazing. Um, he saved my life. Uh-huh. In San Francisco? No, this. I'm sorry. This was in Richmond. I, I stayed okay. home and had treatment for a little bit, and and then went back to grad school with a wig, um, everything else. So that's where malignant humor came about. Right. How did your uh, friends and colleagues respond to this? Well, uh, you know, people were scared, and and I guess I was scared too, and I was 
alone, and I chose to, you know, leave my support system. And But my friends in, in grad school were amazing. Um, you know, I only wish the real world had been that awesome about it. Uh, people were scared. I mean, I was scared too, but I just kind of developed this coping mechanism of, well, I know I'm not going to die. And before, before you know, I knew about cancer because nobody cares until it directly affects them, do they, that we just don't do that. So now that it directly affected me, I was kind of like I got educated about it. I knew all this stuff about it. And, the you know, I'm, I'm a creative person, and so I just kind of thought to myself, I want to be able to have some sort of website for young people with cancer to go to to get some sort of comic relief. Um, and, of course, I was in school and I had all these projects to do, but it kept me going. Like thinking about what malignant humor could be kept me going, and now seeing what you've been doing um, has actually it's, it's been very hard for me to do because, but then, you know, when 50-50 came out and all that stuff, it's kind of like given me the, uh, the go-ahead to be like, it's okay. You know, and I want to be, I want to help other people find their humorous side because, realistically, you know, what happens to you is, is so little of, you know, than the way that you react to it, and everybody might not be able to react to it in a way that is as, as brash or, you know, as, as how I would do it. But I right. think everybody can find their own kind of humor, and I think, you know, when you had, well, Rise on, and I haven't seen Fifty Fifty yet. I know I'm just worried it's going to taint my paint my vision right. um but uh we want to be clear-headed creatively we understand right. yeah yeah and i'm like i know i need to watch it i need to watch it um but and you know the big c and all that stuff it's like now we're talking about it and it's amazing and we can joke about it a little and i guess we can joke about it a little because people aren't dying as much and i guess and, and when everybody we, looked at me at, in school they went oh my god michelle's dying and i was like but i'm not and here's why yeah and so i was able to Get educate people, as well as you know, rid rid myself of a little bit of isolation. Keep in mind, it is still, still very isolative. So, Michelle, let's back up for a second, just to recap for folks. So, you're originally from Virginia. You were at VCU. Then you went out to graduate school in San Francisco. That's where you started to get the symptoms. You went back to Virginia and you were treated there. Is that correct? And then yes. when you got back to San Francisco. You resumed your studies in graduate school, and that's when you decided to start this website yeah. called malignanthumor.com, correct? Yes, yeah. yeah. Okay, now walk us through Malignant Humor, which I'm on now, and James put it is for folks out there. It's malignanthumor.com. You do it's videos. not, actually. I haven't set up a um, – oh, it's just a, a Facebook and a, and a um, Twitter feed right now. Okay. So um, – because I decided to start there because I figured I'm not going to make an entire website until I have people start contributing, and I figured this was a good way to get people to start contributing, being on here. So. Oh, well, are, you, are, there is, are you aware that there actually is a malignanthumor.com website? Yeah, but those guys, I'm, I'm, not, I'm sure once I want to have a malignanthumor.com, they'll give it to me because I have cancer. Like, they don't have cancer, so. <laughs> you need the cancer she card. She playing the no, cancer card. Saying. It's like, that's, yeah, that's step one. Okay. Um, it's definitely going to be like, yeah, well, you don't have cancer, so the domain name is mine. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> as long as you have a plan of action. So don't be I do. That. And it's right. so everyone on, into giving me things, basically. So you're on Facebook, Malignant Humor. Uh, so, all right, so tell us tell us about your uh, your, your Facebook and your, not okay. your site, but your, your Facebook page, and your, you have a Twitter account? Yeah, it's, it's just malignant underscore humor. Okay. Um, there's a whole bunch of, like, 82 total followers. Um, 
and I haven't advertised it much yet, but I think I feel like there's there's been some you know those are the amount of people for the most part that are young adults with cancer that have found it or young adults that have been affected by cancer. So to me that seems like kind of a big victory since I haven't done anything to it other than tweeted and retweeted things. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, hoping to get more people. And I don't think it's for everybody, but it, you know, it definitely gives me some sort of control. Um, and it, and it, I think it can help other people, you know, just kind of like bullying and belittling my cancer gave me the power to not feel isolated and the power to be creative and the power to not worry so much about what a statistic was because I just kind of, I got sick and I was like, no, I don't think so. It's not happening. It's not, I'm not going out like that. It's just not how it's going to be and I'm not interested. And basically that's the whole entire, you know, it, this tiny sense of denial, even though I have a very manageable cancer and I could live to be 80 years old, that's what gets me through and helps other people understand what I'm going, what what we're all going through and, you know, we have plenty of us there's so many young people with cancer now and it's just getting more and more and more prevalent as time goes on it's like every year there's tons of young people that you never expected to get cancer i mean even in the past five years right so So i think that we just need another way to cope right what i'm saying well we certainly we're all for using humor at our organization we rely heavily upon that and so what's your what's your ultimate goal now are you are you finished with graduate school you still in graduate school and where do you want to take malignant humor well i um I am done with graduate school. I had, you know, really good opportunity a couple of years ago to, I got a really coveted internship in creative advertising out in San Francisco, and then I lived in Boulder, Colorado, and, and worked at a creative ad agency there, and I was I was making commercials, and, um, you know, I, I had the opportunity to do that. A lot of juniors don't get the opportunity to do that, so I was doing that for a client and making commercials, and I just kind of sat there and thought, I have so much creativity to give, and I don't want to give it this way. So I kind of, you know, I want to, if, if I'm going to take 10 years off my life, <laughs> I want it to be for something that's that's worthwhile. And so I just really started being like, I need to think about malignant humor. I need to give what it's due, and I need to, um, you know, really search this out. So I kind of came back to Richmond and, and started from scratch last year, um, you know, trying to think of, you know, how how I how can I help other people? How Michelle, can I, if I can ask you, um, how, uh, how how many other organizations have you reached out to? We have about a minute left, and I just want to make sure I'm that uh, we can ensure that uh, people that are listening and other groups out there that do young adult advocacy, you know, they know you exist, you know, they exist, and you know, you 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 are the embodiment of this movement. We, we treat our we treat our diseases with a, a certain degree of serious laissez-faire. And how we choose to get busy living is expressing ourselves largely through satire, humor, and poking a stick at it. So, what are some of the groups that you work with? Some some groups that were that are cancer related. Uh, right. I'm working with the Leukemia Lymphoma Society right now, um, helping them with a creative project that is going to be a, a cancer calendar. I have some projects that I want to work on um, that are very, that are all young adult oriented and and user generated oriented. And uh, I'm going to start doing stuff like that with the website. And I've talked to you guys and um, I haven't talked to the American Cancer Society about malignant humor or anything. You guys seem to be the forum for that. So I, I came to you first when I 
got here and had the time to do it. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be on the show. It's really great to make your acquaintance. And if you find yourself in New York City, stop by and we'll, uh, we'll go out for lunch. All right, great. All right, thank you so much. Thanks. Bye. Michelle Goodwin. Michelle Goodwin, Malignant Humor. Find her on Facebook and Twitter. All right, let's breeze through the news here really quickly and get Hello, to our big guest. I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. I realize that Kenny's not here, so I have no idea what's coming up. I'll make something up. I'll make Oslo. We've got plenty, of, Oslo. We've got plenty of news. All right, during this part of the Stupid Cancer Show, we announced to our listeners a whole bunch of newsworthy programs, events, and services that we don't want you missing out on. They're all free and they're all just for young adults affected by cancer. Things like conferences, happy hours, retreats, kayaking, mountain climbing trips, finance webinars, college scholarships, bar crawls, concerts, tweet-ups, support groups, and more. If you have something coming up that you'd like us to spread the word about during this part of the show, send an email to info at stupidcancer.com. That's info at stupidcancer.com. All right, everybody, head on over to events.stupidcancer.com. That's your one-stop shop calendar for all our social and educational events nationwide. Stay in the loop. We don't want something... We don't want you to miss out on anything. Uh, so everybody just head over and check out that site, events.stupidcancer.com. I'm going to jump now to tell you about the selfless tea because we are more than halfway to our goal of $1,000 $1, with the selfless tea contest. Check out our awesome Get Busy Living t-shirt, $7 of which goes directly to support our program. 87 shirts have been sold so far. Visit selfless. That's S-E-L-F, L-E-S-S as in Sam, T-E-E, selflesstea.com, backslash stupid cancer. All right, the Stupid Cancer Forums have over 2,500 active members every day. This is your premier online community to connect with survivors, patients, parents, and caregivers just like you. Visit stupidcancerforums.com and sign up with one click through Facebook. Team Stupid Cancer has five slots left for the 2012 ING New York City Marathon. Don't miss your chance to be a part of our inauguration into this prestigious race. Email info at stupidcancer.com for more details. And finally, it's time to start the drumbeat for the sixth, count of sixth annual Stupid Cancer Ungala right here in New York City on June 7th at the Taj Lounge in Chelsea. $75 open March, $25 cash bar. Uh, attention, tri-state area. Come on, come on for our epic club night of dancing, raffles, and a raw power of the New York City Metro Stupid Cancer Movement. Visit Stupid Cancer Ungala today, and that is your Stupid, Stupid Cancer, Cancer News. News. All right. Let's Rick roll them. Uh-oh. Becky Johnson is the medical director of the Adolescent and Young Adult Program Oncology Program at Seattle Children's Hospital and assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Washington School of Medicine. Her medical training includes pediatrics, internal medicine, pediatric oncology, and clinical genetics. My old job. She holds a joint appointment in the Division of Genetics where she cares for families with genetic predisposition to cancer. Aha. And... Dr. Peter Kocha is the hematology-oncology section chief at the University of Nebraska Medical Center's College of Medicine in their Department of Pediatrics. He received his doctorate at Upstate Medical Center, Syracuse, New York, very chilly place, I know it well, and his principal research interests include pediatric stem cell transplant, pediatric leukemia and lymphoma, osteopetrosis, Wilms tumor, and non-malignant hematology. Please welcome... 
Peter Kochia and Rebecca Johnson, MD. Doctors. Doctors indeed. Doctors in real life. Doctors they don't in just real play life. Play them on TV. No. <laughs> I can bet you both you've never been introduced at ASCO by Rick Astley. Never. Never, never a musical introduction at all, actually. My pleasure wow. to bring you into our culture. <laughs> we don't know if it's their pleasure yet, no, but it's, it's our not, pleasure. No, it's, it's, it's not your pleasure at all. Um, <laughs> I, I'm really thrilled to have you guys on the show uh, because we just finished the OMG uh, Cancer Summit in Vegas. We had 550 wow. uh, attendees there from 40 states and four countries, uh, three, in, three days of just uh, breakouts and workshops and plenaries and sessions and social events. But the highlight, at least for me, I mean, it's hard to pick out a highlight. But, you know, as an advocate and a cancer survivor who started a nonprofit organization, foolishly as that may sound, um, what I'm most impressed with is the actual, tangible, boots-on-the-ground progress that has actually been made. It's so hard to say that when you're a cause, that here's, like, Habitat Humanity is great because you can see how many houses have actually been built. And the idea of survivorship and young adult care, it's a little more esoteric. It's not research. It's not like, uh, you know, vials and laboratories. But I think the two of you really come from two different ends of the spectrum of that progress. And one of the things that got a huge cheer, and this is for, for, uh, for both of you, but really for Becky, is the fact that there are like something like 19 AYA clinics now in this country uh, mm-hmm. that are really setting a new barometer and a litmus test to ensure higher quality of life, lower morbidity, better you know uh, outcomes. Um, and, uh, and and Peter, you you work with the uh, national. I always forget their name. The NCCN, National Comprehensive Cancer Network. Thank you. And they just released after many many years uh, uh, guidelines, which hopefully will be uh, enacted and implemented and measured and managed. And you were, uh, played a critical role in that process. So those are. At least to me, as the guy that, you know, hopefully if I, God forbid, I get sick again, I know that these systems are in place when they weren't 16 years ago. I guess we'll start with Becky. I mean, talk us through your your history as an oncologist in oncology and and what your perspective is on, on being one of the leading cancer centers in the country with an AYA program. Well, it's been really exciting. I, I was recruited here in um, 2007 to start up an AYA oncology program. Um, Seattle Children's kind of had a, a vision that uh, this was an emerging field and um, would be a, a good area to focus on. And so um, as a children's hospital, we focus on um, patients between 15 and 29 years of age, and then we have um, relationships with uh, the University of Washington uh, and the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance that take care of young adults um, in their 20s through um, 39. And uh, so patients can be uh, treated at the center that's most appropriate for them. And my job in the past several years has been to sort of build those bridges between the disease-specific oncologists at the University of Washington. You really can't have an AYA oncology program without um, having a lot of these collegial relationships because of the fact that the right protocol for the patient might be at your own center. It might be at the, you know, the center across the street caring for, um, you know, pediatrics or adults, depending on your, your perspective. And so, um, so that's been a big element of it. Um, another uh, big initiative for us has been developing some psychosocial programming um, that is for patients at our center, and we're hoping to 
uh, reach out into the whole um, Seattle area and Pacific Northwest to extend some of that programming to uh, really whoever's interested at other institutions as well. And for example, we just had our uh, second annual retreat with the uh, Hole in the Wall Camp uh, Camp Corey in Carnation, Washington. Sure, and, no well. Um, yeah, and uh, that was a wonderful weekend um, that uh, recruited patients again, not only from here at Seattle Children's, but also um, the adult centers and um, from as as far away as British Columbia, actually. Wow. Let's move over uh, to Peter then. As Matthew uh, mentioned in the intro there, the uh, guidelines that have been set by the NCCN, which is the National Comprehensive Cancer sure, Network. Sure, you remember the name. <laughs> well, I, I, I because I remembered to type it out in front of me, okay. so I had it right uh, here. Fine, fine. Yeah. Go be professional. Yes, hosting, hosting a show. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so tell us then, explain to the folks out there, Peter, what exactly, before we get into the guidelines, what exactly the NCCN is. Okay. Uh, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network is an uh, affiliation of 21 uh, major cancer centers throughout the United States, including Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York, where you folks are, uh, Dana-Farber in Boston, uh, Fox Chase in Philadelphia, Johns Hopkins going across the country, Roswell Park in Buffalo, Oh, a whole variety of places, University of Nebraska, where I am, uh, Vanderbilt, uh, University Vanderbilt, of Washington, right? Seattle, where yeah. Becky is, MD Anderson. And um, it's been an organization that's been in place for about 15 years and uh, started about 12 years ago to develop guidelines for pretty much all of the adult cancers, uh, and these are uh, guidelines that are used by probably 80 to 85 percent of adult oncologists in managing their patients. The, the group never developed guidelines for pediatrics because pediatrics tends to be all done in children's hospitals and academic medical centers anyway, and uh, essentially all the programs are involved with the uh, children's oncology group which has protocols for pretty much all of the childhood cancers. The one group that it's sounding like there is a void for is the adolescent and young adults uh, because adolescents young adults uh, have some cancers like uh, childhood ALL, like sarcomas that are more common in children, and they also have breast cancer, uh, colon cancer, melanoma, uh, which are more common in older adults. Right. Yet, uh, as you all know, it's been very difficult for adolescents and young adults to get uh, appropriate care in centers. Plus, as I'm sure you've talked about on your show many times, uh, the survival uh, has improved remarkably for children and for older adults but it's been pretty static in this age group for for many of the reasons uh, that I'm sure you've discussed many times, lack of insurance, compliance. Uh, and by compliance, just for people that don't know, compliance is actually just essentially means following the protocol in terms of Following the protocol, drugs. coming to your doctor visits, taking your medicines. Uh, many adolescents especially uh, don't take their oral medications. Uh, because 
they don't think they want to admit they're sick or for a variety of other reasons, uh, they're just not taking their medicine. So I've been involved with the National Comprehensive Cancer Network for approximately 10 years. I've been on their board of directors as the representative from the University of Nebraska. And it Medical is a nonprofit. Center. It's a nonprofit organization. It is a nonprofit is right? organization, yep. uh, and it has, uh, as one of its major focuses, developed guidelines for cancer treatment. And I have been uh, encouraging for the last several years that uh, there's a real need to develop guidelines for adolescents and young adults with cancer. Not so much treatment guidelines because. The treatment guidelines are embedded in all of the specific treatment guidelines. A few years ago, uh, the NCCN developed a supportive care guideline for older adults, adults over 65 who have a lot of unique problems getting health care. And uh, we convinced them that it was time to uh, develop guidelines for the adolescent and young adult patients. And actually, Becky is the representative from uh, Seattle on the guidelines committee and has been incredibly helpful, especially in areas of fertility and uh, also developing uh, programs for the adolescent young adults and helping us with a lot of the psychosocial issues. Well, that brings my question back to Becky then. Where in the guidelines is it either inferred or suggested or does it come from more of a crowdsourced opinion that we understand the needs the psychosocial needs specifically for this age group, but as far as implementing them, or it, what are the barriers to success? Ugh, to, to, I can't speak tonight. Barriers to success for implementing an AYA program that is is considered credible, that you know that the patients will benefit from it. That the hospitals tend to not think that it's necessary. Can, Becky, can you talk us through the any of the politics if you are aware of them? Sure. So the the barriers to fertility preservation. Yes. For AYAs is well as, so, as one component of what's necessary in an AYA program. Yeah, um, I I think that it's it's a great starting point because uh, fertility preservation is an issue that's so central um, to the the appropriate health care of of most adolescents and young adults. And um, you know, in a, a coming from a pediatric program, most of our patients have not yet had the kids that they want to have and you know increasingly that's the case of course even for young adults in their 30s being treated at adult centers and um, in 2006 the American Society of Clinical Oncology ASCO published a set of guidelines for fertility preservation that specified that every patient regardless of age um, and every patient of reproductive potential um, whose cancer therapy might impact their fertility should have fertility preservation discussed and um, if it's feasible within their own um, treatment um, guidelines, they should um, be offered the possibility for uh, banking sperm or um, in females um, preserving uh, oocytes or uh, embryos prior to the start of therapy. Um, if at all possible. And so those guidelines have, have been out there for several years, but there are a bunch of barriers that um, providers have in actually implementing them. And um, there have been several studies um, within the past decade showing that, in fact, the majority of oncologists um, do not uh, follow the guidelines 100% of the time um, and sometimes not even a majority of the time. And the reasons for that are, are many. Um, 
providers, you know, feel busy and they're taking care of a lot of patients and have a lot of um, treatment-related um, material to get through with the patients at the time of diagnosis. They need to discuss, um, you know, possibly surgeries, chemotherapy, radiation, and so providers often feel that they just don't have the time um, to have a conversation about fertility preservation. They may not understand uh, what resources are available in their local area. Uh, are there reproductive endocrinology clinics? Are there sperm banks? Um, and finally, they may just not feel comfortable having the conversation, um, especially when the patients are teenagers and the parents might be in the room, so they may just not understand how to go about it. And so um, what we did several years ago at, at Seattle Children's was um, just to sort of address all of those issues head on, um, sort of meet the local sperm banks and reproductive endocrinology clinics and see what they had to offer and um, then develop a, a hospital-wide policy in which uh, all patients, um, again, uh, for us it was um, uh, 13 years of age and over um, and uh, post-pubertal for males and, um, and then the female guidelines are still um, emerging because those um, are experimental um, still for, for oocyte cryopreservation. Um, but we, we developed a system by which we would offer all postpubertal males um, the opportunity to bank sperm, and we just made that a um, across-the-board um, you know, provision that that, uh, that needed to be done for all of our new patients. And then we offloaded the task, actually, from uh, the direct oncology providers by the creation of a fertility preservation team, a designated set of um, oncology providers who would have that conversation with the patients um, on the day of their uh, diagnosis within 24 hours and then refer them to the appropriate um, sperm bank. And uh, that system uh, really proved um, incredibly efficient. Um, the providers liked it because it got the, um, you know, the information um, gotten across to the patients without um, a, a significant significant expenditure of time on their part. And, um, and in fact, our rates of sperm banking went up from about 70% to 69% in a year's time. Wow. All right. That's yeah. great. So For sperm banking attempts, anyway. Right. Yeah, that, so that, that's fabulous. Um, let's take a step back again and, and go back to Peter um, in terms of the, uh, the NCCN guidelines again. What was the – I mean, we've been – this has been years in the making, as you said, and organizations like ours have been kind of banging the drum for a while, and there have been doctors like you guys out there banging the drum. But what was eventually, what was the tipping point to actually get these guidelines through with the NCCN? Well, I think a lot of it goes back to that there's been more and more uh, publicity uh, for the need to do things differently in the adolescent and young adult population. And this certainly uh, was championed uh, most by Archie Blyer, who I'm sure you all know, yeah. and uh, also the Livestrong Foundation. And, uh, and it just became apparent uh, that there were more and more unmet needs for this age group. And in uh, starting to talk to my adult oncology colleagues, uh, around the country, uh, it, uh, we started convincing them for that there was a huge unmet need out there uh, for adolescents, young adults, and that 
they needed also to be sent to to centers with expertise in their care. And as as Becky was implying, if they have things like uh, childhood leukemia, certain types of sarcomas, the expertise really is in the children's hospital. If they have uh, breast cancer, colon cancer as a young adult, uh, the expertise is more in the adult oncology community, but where the most that expertise is is in the major comprehensive cancer centers around the country, the uh, the major academic centers where there are large numbers of experts and taking uh, it from the the childhood cancer experience. Uh, it is really important for in treating patients with aggressive cancers to have a multidisciplinary team of of oncologists, surgeons, uh, nurse practitioners, radiation therapists, uh, a whole variety of social workers and uh, psychologists who picture. can help yeah. the patients. Broad tell, tell us two things. One real quick. You mentioned Archie Blyer as being part of the tipping point mm-hmm. in this, and we know who he is. But quickly for the listeners out there who don't, tell us who he is. And then the second part of it is I want to come and talk about clinical trials because there's uh, something very interesting that you give. There's some stats here on your guidelines that says mm-hmm. um, – I want to find this here exactly yeah. – uh, Enrollment, uh, the need for most of Okay, now I'm missing it. But anyway, young adults basically don't take, <laughs> I'll remember don't take part it. I'll, in clinical I'll, trials. I'll right. refresh it. Okay, go ahead. But anyway, okay. Archie uh, was the uh, one of the past chairmen of the Children's Cancer Group uh, for 10 years and uh, has been a, a very well-known oncologist, especially in the area of childhood leukemia and brain tumors and a variety of other things, and uh, has uh, contributed a lot of studies and a lot of uh, things to the literature to educate people about childhood cancer. And he, I think, perceived there was a real need uh, in the adolescent young adult age group because their survival uh, was really lagging compared to... uh, to children with similar diseases, and likewise uh, in adult cancer, with breast cancer and colon cancer especially, the outcomes in patients under 40 are nowhere near as good as in older patients. And he really was one of the first people to uh, really increase the awareness both among the pediatric oncology community and the adult oncology community uh, that this was a different group and uh, that their outcomes were not as good. The other thing you were referring to is that probably 60 to 70% of children uh, have clinical trials available to them to test current therapies, current best available therapies with potential changes that might improve outcome. Uh, the enrollment uh, in the 15 to 19-year-old age group is closer to about 10% on clinical trials. In young adults 20 to 39, it's closer to 1% to 2%, wow. whereas in adults over 40, it's back up to 3 to 5%. One also has to remember that 
over 90% of cancer occurs in patients over 45, so 3 to 5% of those patients being on trials is a huge number of patients, whereas in the 15 to 39 age group, there's probably about, oh, 70,000 of the million and a half cases of cancer a year right. that are seen, and and very, very few of those patients are being treated in in centers that have clinical trials available, which is one of the ways most of us feel that progress will be made in improving outcomes. All right, so let's, let, I'll, I'll put this to either of you. So there are guidelines, right? Who's in charge of making sure they're followed? How, what, talk us through the process by which, great, there's a document, there's consensus, this makes sense, we'd like to see this happen. How does it actually trickle into day-to-day operations in a cancer center, and then how do you ensure its compliance and determine whether it's working or not? Well, you really can't. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I mean, <a> great physicians <laughs> uh, take care of patients, and they're going to uh, do what they think is best for the patients. But by by developing uh, treatment guidelines for the variety of for all varieties of cancer, uh, insurance companies and uh, uh, start looking at at outcomes, they start looking at the costs of care, and they start encouraging uh, the physicians to utilize guidelines. For things like supportive care guidelines, uh, I think that there is less of a a carrot as far as, uh, because you're not talking about costs of drugs and days of hospitalizations and that kind of thing in general, but but uh, making people educated and aware of the availability of guidelines will, I think, uh, gradually get them to uh, accept them and start uh, utilizing the suggestions. One of the things we're trying to do in cooperation with Livestrong is develop an NCCN patient guideline, which can be used actually in in lay language to educate the patients and their families and their uh, other caregivers and spouses and things about uh, navigating through the very complex uh, nightmare of having and being treated for cancer. Has anything like that ever been done before? Uh as far as a a uh, sort of guideline, well, like laypersonizing, if I can use a phrase, your laypersonizing. Oh, uh, well, know. for about the last seven or eight years, uh, NCC, or well, about the last five years, NCCN has started to develop. Uh, for now, they've got nine cancers that they've developed uh, patient guidelines to guide people through their care with those cancers, and they're planning to do a lot more of those. Uh, but this, I think, will be the first uh, lay guideline for supportive care issues rather than specific cancers. So let's go back to Becky. How does this how does this impact what you may already have in place at Seattle Children's? Um, and and does it augment? Does it get in the way? Does it does insurance you know have any play, role in this at all? Um, so I think you know at pediatric cancer centers. Um, there is the the benefit of um, the Children's Oncology Group, a nationwide consortium of 
um, healthcare providers um, creating clinical trials for um, you know the pediatric adolescent and, and young adult uh, population and caring for them in a very methodical and coordinated way that is um, you know often very standardized between centers and so the NCCN guidelines are um, tend to be very highly utilized. Um, I would say more by adult oncology providers than by pediatric. Um, first of all, because they focus on adult diseases, but I think one of the reasons behind that is um, that the children's oncology, um, you know, network already has uh, the children's oncology group in place, and so it's interesting actually because the these guidelines, um, as Peter uh, referenced earlier, are, are very very heavily used by medical oncologists both in academic centers and the community and the guidelines come out of the um is it 21 institutions within right. the NCCN network and Peter I believe you're the only uh pediatric oncologist right who is on the the board of the NCCN I think and, I'm the only pediatric oncologist that's ever been on the board right yeah, and so I think that, that it should certainly be acknowledged um, what your contribution has been to getting these guidelines to fruition and um, sort of taking the epidemiologic data um, identified by Archie Blyer and others and, and sort of bringing that to um, the attention of the NCCN um, as a, a priority and really um, making this happen as a project. I think it's it's been a lot of, of Peter's work to get it to this point. And the other thing, to, to get back to your question, has anybody else done anything like this? Certainly ASCO has its uh, uh, under-40 initiative, which has uh, specific educational programs uh, for physicians and patients. Uh, Leukemia Society has, a, uh, I think, a web website, uh, chat room type thing. Uh, but I think this is the first time we've really... Uh, tried to organize guidelines from uh, from diagnosis to on therapy to having uh, extensive uh, survivorship guidelines and end of life guide suggestions uh, for those patients who uh, have advanced cancer who are not curable. Uh, it includes a lot of uh, potential resources available in the community, and uh, hopefully uh, this will uh, will have an impact in the future, and I really think it will. I have a question that goes to you're discussing some of the, the cancers that tend to be the more adult cancers like breast cancer and colon cancer that can hit young adults as well, because I've never heard a clear answer to this. Um, I, I'm a, I'm a, I was diagnosed with breast cancer in my the 20s now, uh, about 16 years ago, and I remember at the time, and I was treated here in New York at Columbia Presbyterian, and I rem remember at the time my oncologist saying to me, you have an older women's, an older woman's type of breast cancer, and that's a good thing, and I had no idea what she was talking about at the time. I know that I had the lump in my body for about a year before it was diagnosed. Wow. I had felt it, and so Clearly, I was, you know, quite panicked by the time it was diagnosed, but it turned out that it was slow-growing. Now, I know that the breast cancer, as you, as you mentioned, the survival rates um, are grim for the young adult, for the under 40, mm -hmm. you know, as compared to, to older women. A lot of that comes from uh, misdiagnosis, I would think, or late diagnosis. But in a case for something like 
you know, I heard where it was clear. She said you have an older woman's mm-hmm. type of cancer. Is there really what, – what is the difference it, it, biologically? I mean, clearly there's a biological difference in the type in, – in, in the cancer itself yeah, that unquestionably, it turns, it, it's more aggressive. Yeah. It, Unqu- it, it, unquestionably, uh, younger adults who are diagnosed with breast cancer tend to have uh, more aggressive forms, uh, both genetically and by the marker studies, the triple negative form. Again, neither Becky or I are breast cancer doctors, but um, certainly... Uh, and is it the same for in, colon or the other kind of adult where they tend to be more aggressive with that age group as I opposed to the older I think more in 40? colon cancer, the, the types of cancer are the same, but... You have to remember that everybody is pounding on older adults to get colonoscopies, and uh, right. the right. rare patients who get colon cancers in their 20s and 30s tend to be diagnosed late, only after they've shown a lot of symptoms. Right. Mm-hmm. Unless they have and, yeah. a genetic predisposition and other people in the family that have already been diagnosed, and then they may start getting better surveillance. So for something like a breast cancer that can grow more rapidly, what is there? Is there any? Uh, does anybody know why essentially that is for that age group, for that kind of a cancer that it grows with it at a quicker rate? Um, so there, we're actually I'm working on a, a couple of um, studies on that right now actually, and um, people um, over the past oh, say five years have done. Um, some studies on uh, gene expression profiling um, that is looking at uh, the expression of of, um, every um, gene uh, within a breast cancer cell and trying to see, okay, are there differences that can be measured in the expression of um, distinct genes between uh, younger women's breast cancers and older women's breast cancers. And uh, the reports are um, somewhat conflicting and um, at best do not show um, a huge difference um, in uh, the gene expression within breast cancers that um, it goes beyond that which is attributable to the fact that younger women get these biologically aggressive, um, often triple negative um, cancers more frequently than older women do. However, um, some of our very recent um, research, which um, has not been published yet, um, shows that there, in fact, uh, may be uh, some subtle differences uh, with for younger women's breast cancers, um, especially when you look uh, within uh, subtypes. Mm-hmm. So that's that is emerging data and um, is is not easy to tease out from um, gene expression uh, profiling studies on um, uh, the existing body of literature right now. But yeah. it, it probably you know the hypothesis is that there must be some differences in um, in the cancers of younger women um, to explain um, their inferior survival um, compared to older women. Um, again, uh, subtype does uh, play a significant part, and, um, and younger women often have um, tumors that are biologically uh, bad actors um, more so than older women. Right, and the whole point of tonight's show is just to talk about the fact that this is still progress, that we weren't even thinking about these conversations as early as three to five years ago, and now we're having these conversations. And from what I'm to understand, there's a, uh, there may be, and I may, I'm going to tease this, a, 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 a um, young adult epigenetics dream team uh, that is going to be submitting itself for consideration um, 
for uh, for Stand Up to Cancer this year. They're going to be, uh, you know, it's the whole process to get nominated. But the idea of a of a dream team focused on the epidemiology and the epigenetics of the young adult biology mm-hmm. is, is is again, I think it just ties into this idea that this was totally off the radar five years ago. Yeah. And everything we're doing today, whether the you know the guidelines are great to have. Yes, we hope they get implemented. We, the, I would do anything to get that layperson-izing of them down to some sort of digestible social media pamphlet, you know, to get that in the hands of people. And I think the the alliance groups like ours, Johnny Roman, First Ascent, you know, they're doing. We're here to give this generation a voice. And Peter, you know, just thank you for recognizing that we are making a lot of noise. And I think it's making a big deal. Yeah. I think it's really tremendous progress, and I think that these NCCN guidelines, again, put into the hands of um, medical oncologists who um, probably have only, you know, a small minority of their patients ever within the AYA age range, given that cancer is a disease of older adults, um, having the guidelines available and um, these you know, all of the groups and, and more um, that you mentioned um, right there in within the guidelines, um, you know, and essentially just a mouse click away uh, is really going to increase, um, hopefully, the utilization of all of those resources by AYAs, but also the the access um, to them for, for newly diagnosed cancer patients. You know, I think that one of the things that I have seen over the last 10 or 15 years that more and more when a new patient comes in, they come in with larger and larger stacks of things that they've printed off the Internet. Right. And uh, and you start going through it, and unfortunately about half of it is either extremely old or or bogus. Mm-hmm. And uh, But uh, they are finding some things that are conflicting and some things that are are quite good, but it's hard for them to translate that. And I think we all spend lots of time going through this stuff and trying to educate the patients and their families of what is, uh, you know, real science and what is uh, totally out of date or bogus. And uh, I think having uh, things like the what ASCO is doing with the focus under 40, what we're hoping to do with the with the patient guidelines that uh, we will be able to, in one place, have a lot of very, very good information. And I think we're going to be able to influence the care people get because they're going to come to the doctor and say, well, do you have this? Do you have that? Am I at the right place to be taken care of for this cancer? Or do I need to go to uh, another center with more resources uh, or more experience? Because as Becky pointed out, most internists, uh, the average age of their patient is 65 or 70, uh, and certainly they have very few patients under 40. Right. Well, it's been terrific having you both on the show. Uh, this This is great. And, again, all good news, all progress moving forward. And uh, it's been a great discussion. We thank you both, uh, Dr. Peter Kocha and Dr. Rebecca Johnson, for joining us tonight. And, uh, Becky, quick side note, we have a whole bunch of Seattle chapter people that really want to get the, the have you over for a drink or something. <laughs> Sounds great to me. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Or two. <laughs> thank you. Or two. Yeah. Or two drinks, for that matter. <laughs> right. But thank you, guys. You do great okay. work. I'm, I'm a humble fan. 
keep up the great work, and uh, we'll, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks okay. for joining right. us. Thank you so we much. If we can help you All with right. anything else, let us know. Always. Thank you. Always. All Bye-bye. Right. Peter Kocha, right. thank you, Johnson. Pioneers in the young adult cancer movement. Clinical oncology champions. Amazing stuff. Oh, all right. I'm beef from all this progress. <laughs> That's a wrap. <laughs> that is a wrap. Here we go. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray! I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, <laughs> you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. All right, everybody, that is tonight's show, our 221st broadcast. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. We'd like to thank our in-studio best friend, Reverend Dr. James Manning. We're wishing Kenny Kane a happy vacation. You want to say something? Happy vacation. To Kenny. To Kenny. Enjoy your vacation, Ginger Bastard. Michelle Goodwin, Becky Johnson, and Dr. Peter Kocha. Great guest tonight. All right, everybody, join us next week, April 23rd, when we're going to be talking about Cancer Camp. Take me away. Gary Mervis joins us. He's the chairman and founder of Camp Good Days and Special Times. Rachel Firefly, Firestone, national program director of Camp Kessem. Find out what that's all about. And in the spotlight, Thomas Ryan, young adult survivor, brain tumor. If you've missed any of our past shows, download them all for free anytime on iTunes at itunes.stupidcancer.com or check out the archives anytime at stupidcancershow.com Remember folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck, on behalf of Lisa Bernhardt, myself, and our whole team here at Stupid Cancer, have a great week, and we'll see you back here next Monday, live at 8. Good night, everybody. We're all veterans of a battle.